So has anyone here in the church noticed that the primaries are this week by any chance? Yeah, I have too. We, we've been getting some notices in the mail. In fact, I've talked to Philip about how I seem to get one from him about every three minutes in my mailbox <laughs> as it's come through. Uh, but I am very grateful for men like Philip who are willing to stand up and to allow themselves to say, yes, I will serve, and the Lord's will be done uh, this week. We've arrived at a perfect passage of Scripture to help us for this particular week, and it will help reorient our minds about what is truly important. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask Him to teach us, and allow ourselves to be saturated uh, with the truth of the gospel so that we can make good, qualified decisions. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, we praise you for uh, the way that, that you have provided your word in a very timely manner. That, Lord, at times uh, we recognize that as we preach through a book of the Bible, that sometimes the truth of what we need may not be for several months, may not even be for years. But your Holy Spirit works through the word to implant it, to change our hearts so that we might be prepared when the time comes. And then there are other times, Lord, like this week, when your word comes to us in such a way to help us prepare for important decisions that need to be made. Lord, we pray this morning not only for our dear brother Philip, but for our entire community, for our state, for our nation right now. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up godly people to serve in these roles, to serve us, but more importantly, to serve you. And Lord, we pray that as we delve into the word this morning, that it would be the guide that we need to make good and proper decisions. We love you. We know that your will will be accomplished no matter what, and we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that our security is what Christ has done and in his finished work. Amen. Well, if you will, open up your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 22. If you haven't been with us the past couple of sermons, we are midway within eight controversial encounters that Jesus had with the religious establishment of Jerusalem in the week preceding his death on the cross. I'm not going to go into much detail about what has preceded this moment, mainly because we have a lot to cover this morning. These next eight verses carry a powerful message, and we need to give ourselves some time to work through the implications. But needless to say, ever since chapter 21, verse 18, and continuing all the way through chapter 23, our author Matthew is revealing the reasons why Jesus was rejected by the religious authorities. In short, these deeply religious men give the appearance of righteousness, but their hearts are far from God. They look good on the outside with their external actions, but it's obvious that they do not love God. We mentioned last week that John 3:19 characterizes these men that despite the true light coming into the world, the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That has been on display up to this point as we've seen the duplicity of the chief priest and the elders here. It's clear they fear losing the influence over men rather than fearing God. And this morning's episode will reveal that all the more. Remember now, there are eight different confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders, and we're now at number five. And this one is led by the Pharisees. We see this in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went 
and plotted how to entangle him in his words. We can see clearly that what is about to transpire is a deliberate plot to malign Jesus in some way. The question they give him is not because they were searching for a legitimate answer to a controversial issue. This was a ruse. They chose the question because the topic was controversial. The situation and their query was designed to entrap Jesus. So our outline this morning has three main parts. The attempt to trap Jesus, our Lord's response, and the implications from Jesus' answer. We could summarize that as plot, response, and implications. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, before I get to the question itself, it's going to help to identify the different parties that are involved here. It can be confusing if you don't know the categories. In the city of Jerusalem, there were two prevailing religious parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Jews were given a special dispensation by the Roman government to run their own religious affairs since their religious laws were tied so closely to the civic community. It would not do having a pagan interpret those religious laws. So the Jews were given permission to rule themselves provided they were subservient to Rome. The Romans withheld capital punishment from them and they still required the Jews to pay taxes. But in most other cases, they allowed them to oversee their own affairs. And they did so through a civic council called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was composed of 70 men who assumed the title of elder in the city. And an elder could be either a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Think almost along the lines of a Democrat and a Republican serving as a House member. Each party had its own distinct religious beliefs, and I'm going to save the explanation for those differences for next week's sermon. It's going to be relevant at that point. But for now, I need to explain to you their political affiliations. The Sadducees were the party that controlled the priesthood and the temple. In order to keep the Jews in line, the Romans insisted on approving who was appointed the high priest. They wanted to make sure that the high priest was always sympathetic to the Roman governor. So the Sadducees were allies of Rome as it suited their purposes. The Pharisees believed that this collusion with the pagan Romans was reprehensible. They viewed the Romans as occupiers. Some Pharisees believed so strongly in resisting the Romans that they were called zealots. And while the Sadducees had the backing of the Romans, the Pharisees had the support of the general population within the surrounding synagogues. Therefore, they had influence over most of Judea, while the Sadducees had control over the capital city of Jerusalem. So it's going to help to keep that in mind. Sadducees were pro-Roman, and Pharisees saw the Romans as unclean occupiers. These were the two main parties that made up the Sanhedrin. And the fact that these two parties worked together against Jesus means that they saw him as a legitimate threat. Now, we're about to be introduced to another group called the Herodians. The Herodians were also Roman sympathizers, and they were connected in some way to the royal family of Herod the Great. These would have been aristocratic Jews who would have aligned themselves with the Sadducees. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, tells us of a Herodian who became a Christian and served the church at Antioch. 
So make no mistake about it. We have Pharisees and Sadducees colluding together here. It's just that the Herodian branch of the Sadducees would have had more influence if Jesus fell into their trap by his answer. That is who's involved in this plot. These men approach Jesus and they begin with some truthful flattery. Everything they say in this sentence is absolutely true. And it's very telling how Jesus was perceived by others. Verse 16, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. That last phrase, swayed by appearances, in Greek literally means by the look on other people's faces. If you have a good Bible translation, that should be uh, in the footnotes at the bottom of your text some way. Every word of this statement is true. Jesus was the master teacher. He was always honest. He did teach the way of his father truthfully. And he certainly demonstrated that he cared more about the opinion of his father than he did other men. That is a 100% accurate statement concerning Jesus. And I hope as a preacher of the word of God, it could be said of me as well. But note that this carefully phrased flattery here is worded in such a way that narrows down to Jesus' opinion alone. When they ask their question, whatever answer Jesus gives will be his entirely. Not only must he take responsibility for it, he must answer believing that this is the way Almighty God sees it. For after all, he teaches the way of God truthfully. And because of this, they say, tell us the answer to this specific question. And the question is so clever. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What do you think? The query is put in such a way that it requires a yes or no answer. Now, the specific tax that they're talking about is the poll tax. This was not just a tax that everybody hated because no one likes to pay taxes. It was an amount required of every male citizen. And the purpose of the tax was to pay for the Roman military and civil servants that resided in Judea. So if one were sympathetic to the view of the Pharisees, they would view this tax as paying for the occupation of foreign invaders. And if you were a Herodian, you would see the tax as ensuring peace and stability in the land so that you could remain in power. And it just so happens that there were members of both groups there to hear Jesus' reply and take back the answer to their individual sex and report his beliefs. If he replies, yes, it is lawful, then he'll be perceived as a Roman sympathizer. If he says no, then the Herodians can report back to their cronies that Jesus is seditious and dangerous, maybe even leading to his arrest. They have him where he will either lose the vast majority of his following or where he's going to be hounded by the Romans. Jesus' reply is spectacular. It's really good. I shouldn't be surprised. He's God, right? But first, note our author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reveals to us that Jesus was very much aware of their malice. This is, after all, the Word who became flesh. This is very God himself, and he knows all things, including the thoughts of men. We saw this as early as Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, when Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees in Capernaum. 
Their flattery will not work on Jesus any more than it will work on God now when we give him lip service in our prayers, yet we don't really mean it. God always knows the state of our hearts. We cannot fool him. So Jesus begins by calling them out, letting them know he knows why they are asking this question. They're not trying to get Jesus to resolve a debated issue. Verse 18, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And then he provides an object lesson. He asked that they show him a coin for the tax. And they must have had some wealth because they're able to produce a Roman denarius. This coin carried the monetary value of a full day's wage for an average worker. Probably it'd be like carrying around a $100 bill. Not all denarii were Roman, as the temple minted its own money so that it would not bear the image and violate the second commandment when given as a tithe or offering. But according to verse 21, this was a Roman denarius. On one side of it, it would have had the image of Tiberius with the inscription, Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, claiming that the previous emperor was a deity. And on the other side would be the inscription Pontifex Maximus, which the Jews would have understood to mean high priest. It certainly would have been offensive to any self-respecting Jew, much less the very fact that the Son of God was there and he is the high priest. Therefore, Jesus asked them the identity of who is on the coin. And they all affirm it is Caesar. Jesus states, give to Tiberius what is his and give to God what belongs to God. It's a deft answer because, as you can see, it causes his critics to even marvel at him. They failed in their mission, and they have to walk away. This seems like a, a clever retort that Jesus answered their question in such a way that he can seem loyal to God without offending the Romans. It may appear that Jesus is too slippery for them to catch. But if we view the answer as though Jesus merely escaped from a trap— we miss the fact that Jesus gave a profoundly theological answer here. He really is teaching the way of God truthfully, and it has implications for those of us who follow Christ. Essentially, Jesus' answer is one of hierarchy. Government is ordained by God, who grants mankind the stewardship of ruling upon the earth under his authority. It is what we do as his image bearers, according to Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. And after the fall, ever since Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God has given mankind the ability to execute justice upon others on his behalf. That was the first time in Scripture that we see man given stewardship over such a role. God instituted it for our good and as a check to our own sinfulness. In our Lord's reply, the Jews had to acknowledge that Roman authority, because they were under the sovereignty of God, and that's who placed them under it. It doesn't matter that the government is pagan. In fact, there were at least two other occasions where God installed a pagan government over his people. Both examples shape the historical identity of his chosen. The first was to place them under Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This occurred when eventually they came under captivity after Jacob moved his family from Canaan down to Egypt. Even two generations before Jacob's birth, 
God told his grandfather, Abraham, what he would do. Listen to Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. The second was during the exile when they were subjugated to the Babylonians due to their arrogance in disregarding God. This was also told beforehand in scriptures from passages like Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, listen to this, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread out his royal canopy over them. It was acknowledged at the time that this occurred, the prophet Daniel told the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, he says to Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. This authority was given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. The Bible makes it very clear that it was God who installed these authorities over his people. This was Yahweh's doing. So it is possible that God will place his people under the authority of a pagan government that does not know him. However, it is still hierarchical. If God does that, it is still under his command. God is overall, and he is to be supremely obeyed. And Jesus' answer implies that everything is subject to God. The Lord gets the first allegiance. Just prior to Daniel's proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar, he revealed a few verses earlier when he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He, meaning God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Proverbs 21, verse 1, tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And Paul told the philosophers of Athens in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that, that God even determines the boundaries of nations. Like our psalm this morning, God is over all, whether sinful humanity will acknowledge it or not. His sovereign rule extends over pagan governments. Therefore, we are to submit to the authority of government, recognizing that it is what God has ordained for us. Our Lord's answer in Matthew 22 would have certainly frustrated a Jew who was looking for him to lead a political insurrection in that moment. Now you may ask, Blair, aren't you taking this a little too far based upon one sentence from Jesus? Great question. The other inspired writers of the New Testament affirm this teaching as well. If you will, turn to Romans chapter 13. In your pew Bible, this is found on page 948. Romans chapter 13. Paul had a reason to write this to the Christians in Rome. After all, they were living in the very seat of Roman power and would be affected by their rule more than even the outer fringes of the empire. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God and those that exist that have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this next part's important. It's going to have relevance to our discussion a little bit later, but, but note that Paul will draw attention to the citizen doing good and the citizen doing wrong. All right? I just want to highlight this now and make a comment about it later on. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, and just so we know, this is the Greek word kakos. It is normally translated as evil. But if you do wrong or evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer or the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So it is very clear God ordains authorities over Christians including the Romans, to promote good and to punish evil. Now, if you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, this is found on page 1015 in your pew Bible. We need to see what the apostle Peter writes to make sure this is not just some aberrant Pauline teaching. Here the apostle is writing to the provinces of Rome of what is present-day Turkey. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It's interesting that Peter is saying this while also implying within this same letter that the pagan government may be getting ready to bring down persecution on the very people to whom he's writing. So let me rehash the argument here, and let's talk about practical applications for the present-day Christian. God ordains government to his image bearers. He gives us the stewardship of rule within his creation. Mankind is to govern according to the Lord's authority. That would be based upon the character of God himself. So whatever God deems is just and good, that is the standard by which we rule on his behalf. Remember that moral quality that we read back in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter 2? the good and the evil. Therefore, government should rule justly, promoting good and punishing evil. Agreed? All right. Now we know in the sovereignty of God, there is still sin in the world. How can good government be executed perfectly by sinful humans or sinful humans? It can't. It is impossible. 
And yet God still ordains government upon the earth for our good and for his glory. So what do we do when we know the governing authorities above us are corrupt? It's a good question, isn't it? Now, we only tend to think of this in terms of our own situation within the United States, but we also need to remember we have brothers and sisters around the world that are under regimes that are entirely evil without recourse. What goes for them should also go for us according to the Word of God. So what do we do when the government above us is evil? Well, according to the Bible, we do submit. We seek the good and the peace of the kingdom by being excellent citizens. This is the will of God, therefore it brings him glory. We do good despite our government doing bad. We pay our taxes. But what if our tax dollars are not only used for government, but also evil purposes? For example, you may be a citizen of Russia right now. Do you pay your taxes knowing that your government will use your money to finance the war in the Ukraine? Another good question. An American might ask, well, do I give my taxes even though my government desires to fund abortion and gender ideology? If you notice in all three New Testament passages, Jesus said also, render under Caesar's what is Caesar's. Paul says, pay to all what is owed them. Peter says, honor the emperor, which would have meant paying your taxes. There are no conditions. That is because the government is hierarchical. Government leaders are accountable to God. And God will hold them accountable for their stewardship, just as he will hold me accountable for pastoring his congregation, husbands and wives for their marriages, and parents raising their children. The Bible is very clear that those in authority will receive the Lord's full wrath for their evil deeds. Both the Egyptian and Babylonian empires can testify to that. But what if your government calls you to do an evil action? What if they're asking you to commit murder with your own hands or openly promote actions that are clearly condemned by Scripture or even to renounce your faith? Then again, we must remember government is hierarchical and all of us are ultimately accountable to God. Therefore, we have to obey God rather than men. And we must be willing to accept the consequences of disobeying our corrupt government. We have two recorded instances in the book of Acts where the apostles did just that. In Acts chapter 4, verse 19, and in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. In both examples, Christians were ordered to keep quiet about Jesus or be beaten. They chose the beating, giving as their reason, we must obey God rather than men. If you return back to Romans chapter 13, you will see that Paul qualifies his terms between doing good and doing evil. Good and evil are determined by God, not by governments. Therefore, we do good regardless of the consequences. Right now, we in this room are privileged to live in a nation that allows us to vote for our leaders. So let me give you some biblical wisdom for how one should engage in politics. 
Because first, the, the tendency is to disengage when politics get heated or they madly seem to be going in the opposite direction of which we want them to go. We get frustrated and we just want to throw our hands up with the whole business and be done with it, right? But Christians are not given that opportunity. Remember, Peter instructed, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And Paul tells us to engage our government leaders in a way that sadly I find most Christians have failed to do. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 2, the first four verses. First of all, then... I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And listen to this. For kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Note that Paul said that we pray for our political leaders not against our political leaders. Now, please understanding, I'm not saying at the bare minimum we should be praying for our government leaders. I am saying that prayer is of first importance. You got me? It's where we should start and what we should continue to do. I pray for the soul of Joe Biden just as I have prayed for the soul of Donald Trump. And I'm praying over our primaries this Tuesday. Prayer is a demonstration of faith by the Christian that God is sovereign and that he is in control and that he is primary. Second, Christians are called to be heralds of truth. We of all people should care about truth and accuracy. Amen? Our message of salvation depends upon it. In our Twitter-filled world, where each tweet can only carry 280 characters, not words, but characters, meaning letters, numbers, and punctuation, it's easy to pass along rumors and misinformation. If the message touches a nerve on one of our hotspots, we're quick to pass it along without checking. So for the people who are especially called not to bear false witness, We need to slow down and check our facts. Even major media outlets get this wrong, folks, so we should make sure that we are speaking the truth. But here's the deal. Like the rest of sinful humanity, we can think that we have the truth about a subject and be wrong in our understanding. This is why all truth should be evaluated according to the standard of God's word. All of us are under this. Jesus prayed, sanctify them with the truth. Your word is truth. We have a standard of truth that has been unbroken for millennia. It will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away before God's word passes away. Not only do I wish Christians would pray more, I wish they would read their Bibles more. Read it before you go to Douglas Wilson or John MacArthur or John Piper's opinion or even my own. In the end, we will be held accountable to God, not to any of those men. The Bible has the truth that you need. It is the source of truth. Third, 
Since we've been given this great privilege of selecting our own leaders, we need to use the information that we gather to select candidates that seek to honor the Word of God. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom personifies herself, and she cries out, By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. In Psalm 99.4, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. That means we don't assume someone's righteousness based upon a particular political party, but we ask the difficult questions, and we check the track records, and we make the best choice according to our judgment. Now, I might make people a little bit angry about what I'm about to say. I'm a big boy. I can take it. The best candidate may not always be affiliated with either of the major two parties. I get hounded when I talk about voting third party. Oh, Blair, you're, you're throwing your vote away. Or your lack of voting for my candidate means the opposition party will win. I hear those types of arguments all the time. But I'm going to challenge you. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? The Bible tells me that I will be accountable for my own actions. To the best of my abilities, coming under the word of God, I want to vote for someone according to my conscience is the best candidate, not just the lesser of two evils. I cannot always count on a sin-saturated population to select the best candidate from either party. You are accountable under God for who you vote for. Not if the candidate ends in sin themselves, but in your choice. Fourth, when it comes to politics, we are to love our enemies. In Matthew's gospel, we've already read in Matthew 5, verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sounds like Paul. Pray for the kings and those who are above you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's interesting to note that just after Paul's teaching on government in Romans 13, he immediately writes this in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And of course, we remember his instructions in Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth in love. We're not called to love the sin or love the political position but we are called to love our enemies and our neighbors. When we do this in the political arena, when we demonstrate love to our opposition, we are demonstrating the power of Christ. Here's a miracle that I have witnessed. Maybe you've seen it too, right? I have actually witnessed an Auburn fan love an Alabama fan. I've even seen some of them get married to one another. 
Certainly, God's power is great enough to enable Republicans and Democrats and independents to love one another. In fact, if I love you, I should dignify you with the respect to hear you out on your positions, even though I might disagree. And if you love me, you should do the same rather than demonizing one another by labeling me in categories such as racist, homophobic, socialist, or anti-American, or any other label you want to try to slap on someone. If you want to test this on yourself, look back at your last 10 social media posts. How many of them conveyed love for your neighbor? Does the world know, do they know you for Christ or for what you are against? I I find it poetic justice that among Jesus' own disciples, he had a Roman sympathizing tax collector and a zealot, two extremes that loved one another. Fifth and most importantly, Remember the gospel. This is the most important point. Remember the gospel. Let me get us back to our story in Matthew chapter 22. And I'm going to do so by asking, if you will, to please turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is found on page 983 of your pew Bible. There's a truth here that we must lay hold of when we face possible corrupt officials or corrupt governments, and we are somehow subjugated to them. We need to keep this in mind. It's how the gospel keeps working in us in every situation. Verse 15, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I keep saying this, the gospel is more than just a one-time salvific event for a believer. It is good news that should shape every aspect of our lives. It should be permeated inside of us that our first situation, every situation we find ourselves is to look to Christ. And that includes government. God is the only one who can execute justice perfectly. He is the only one that can rule perfectly. And the gospel tells us that every single human being, with the exception of Jesus, is a sinner. We are completely depraved in that every aspect of our humanity has been contaminated by sin that causes us to seek our own glory rather than God's. In God's good government, He must punish our trespasses against him. And that should frighten every single one of us. But the good news is like we read in Colossians 1. Christ has made peace between us and the Godhead. And he has reconciled us to God. 
That is the only remedy for our sinful state. And it means this is the only hope that can cause us to rule well. Not only that, as Colossians 1 tells us, Christ has redeemed us also, and he's also redeemed the whole cosmos. That will come when he returns. It is his intention to restore creation, not only to its original state before sin, but even better now that we have the background of how the Lord overcame our sin through Jesus Christ. So that in the name of Jesus, whether in heaven or on earth, every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our sure future, folks. That is what's going to happen. It's as certain as the existence of God and the salvation that Christ achieved. That's what's going to happen. Folks, governments cannot save us. Only Jesus can. Governments can't bring peace to their own nations, much less the entire earth. Only Jesus can do that. Governments cannot fix our sinful hearts, but Jesus can. Therefore, our trust should be in Jesus, not in government. When the Pharisees and the Herodians approached Jesus with their question, they did not believe that. They thought they could fix their problems with their religious laws and civil government. But sitting in front of them was the very King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Their response in that moment should have been to render unto God the things of God by submitting their souls to the king that was sitting in front of them. And the same is true for us today. We also have to submit ourselves to the very, very king and his sovereignty, knowing that while maybe things in the world right now just seem topsy-turvy, I get it. I have these concerns for my children. I have these concerns for my fellow citizens and my neighbors. But my allegiance is to Christ alone. I'll do the best I can with the wisdom that he's provided, but I am certain of my future. Just as I'm certain that he exists, just as I am certain that he is the king and he is sovereignly ruling over all. Therefore, my response just like your response, should be, I submit my soul to Jesus. I surrender all. Let's pray. Lord, I am just so gracious, or know that you are just so gracious and feel your graciousness and how you bring your word to comfort us, Lord, in times of of decision-making, of times when we feel pressure upon ourselves. Lord, it always just seems like we, we tell each other, 
that this election is the most important, that this decision by the Supreme Court is the most important, that, that, that this law that is getting ready to be passed is the most important. And Lord, that's because we have a very strong sense of justice and what should happen. But Lord, we need to remember that you are sovereignly in control. And that, Lord, you allow sinners to pursue their sin so that they would come to an end of themselves, so that they would recognize that the remedy is not in us, but in the Lord God, who has provided us a means of salvation through his Son. So, Lord, let us turn our hearts to Jesus right now. Let us remember these, these powerful words that we have in Colossians 1 to know who our true king is and that all things were created for him and by him and through him and that all things, Lord, will be held underneath him, whether thrones or dominions or authorities, that Christ will reign, that he reigns over all right now. Let our hope and our confidence be in that. We pray this because Christ has finished the work on our behalf. Amen.